It's the last week of this series. Can you guys believe it? It's the last one. I am actually pretty excited because I got my next series lined up. It's called I Know a Guy. Anybody know a guy who knows a guy? My dad was always that person when I was growing up, right? Hey, Dad, I need this. I think I know a guy, right? So we're going to look at, uh, we're going to take a new look at Psalm 23, and uh, it's going to be called I Know a Guy. And so I'm excited. It's going to be really good. We're going to going to spend six more weeks talking about Jesus. What's better than that, right? But this week, we got to finish up this series first. I've had a lot of fun with this series. I hope you guys have. Um, I hope you guys know that last week, man, last week was such a powerful week, and I hope you guys know that you set a really high first bar, right? Because that was my first Sunday in the building. So you set a really high, high first bar. So I'm expecting each week we're going to build on that, right? Right? Okay. Okay, we're getting there, right? Okay, we're getting there. So, so this is our last week, rebranding. Now, let me give you a little recap for you so you remember this series. We started with uh, the question, why do we exist, right? Because the whole purpose of this series is that the church kind of needs rebranded, right? Because what we look like to everybody else is not what Scripture says we should look like. So we started with the question, why do we exist? Now, if you remember, there were three reasons we exist. Do you remember what those were? Anybody? Up, in, out, right? So we exist to go up, to glorify God, to worship God, to go in, right? The scraping out of the pumpkin, right? To, to clean our lives up, to, to get right with Jesus. And then finally to go out, right? To give other people the opportunity to see how good this experience is. And so we started with that. And then we worked through what things are we for instead of what things are we against? Because we're mostly known in the rest of the world by what we're against. So what things are we for, right? We're for life. Then we talked about uh, what unites us as a church, right? What unites us? What things bring us together? Because a lot of things in the world right now bring us apart, right? Just about everything is polar opposites anymore. There's, the middle is so minimal. Everything's polar opposites. So what unites us? What brings us together? And last week, we talked about what does it look like to follow Jesus? Now, I climbed in and out of a box. So if you don't remember that one, I'm going to be a little disappointed Okay, so we talked about what does it look like to follow Jesus? It talked about having a bigger box, right? Being able to encompass all of God and not just the parts that we can explain or like. And then it requires us to move forward in our journey, to take our next step past just the simple stuff of faith. So really, as we wrap up this series, what we've really been talking about in this series is the fact that the church, if we're being honest, is a mess, <laughs> Right? We are a mess. It is so messy. We get church and, and faith wrong so much. And pastors feel this weight, right? Because pastors are not exempt, right? We're doing our best to lead God's people, right? The thing is, sometimes we get it wrong. <laughs> just throwing that out there now, right? This is why I always tell you that uh, you shouldn't just take what I say for granted. You should go home and actually look and make sure the Bible says that, right? Because I could preach whatever I want up here, and you'd have no idea if you weren't doing it for yourself. So sometimes pastors get it wrong. Other times, pastors know within their heart that what the right answer is, and they're, and they're trying to lead God's people, except, as one of my seminary professors once told me, no one tells you that sheep bite. <laughs> sometimes the pastor feels completely sure that this is the way God wants us to go, and he's not the one that's wrong, or she is not the one that is wrong. 
And I can share with you this morning that, that there have been moments. In, in, I, I've been in ministry now. I've been pastoring churches for 10 years now, 10 years in December. And there have been many moments where I will sit up at night and I will pray and I will say, God, please give me something else to do. Release me, God. Let me do something easier. Right? And it's hard. And let me tell you what, this year has been the hardest. This year has been the hardest, right? Because we're trying to lead churches through an era that we've never experienced before, right? Through stuff we've never experienced before. And I get the fun pleasure of doing that with people that I've met about three months ago, and I've only really met about a third of you. <laughs> so this year has been really difficult. There have been weeks where I think, God, surely there's something else, <laughs> And I know that I'm not alone in this. They did a study last year before COVID, right? Before all this hit. And here's what the numbers said. 75% of pastors report being extremely stressed. 40% report a conflict with a parishioner at least once a month. 80% of pastors will not be in ministry 10 years later. 80%. The average time that a seminary-trained pastor spends in church ministry is five years. Five. Now, I don't know if you guys know how expensive seminary is. That's a pretty expensive trade-off. Five years. 70% say they have a lower self-esteem now than when they started in ministry. 70% don't have someone they would consider a close friend. Ministry is hard. Church is hard. It is messy. Right? We've spent six weeks talking about how messy church is and where, they're, where we get it wrong. And so I'm left as this last week with one last question. Is it worth it? And if I feel this way, right? if I question whether the, the, the late nights and the stress and the long hours, right? I think it was something like 60% of pastors report more than, working more than 70 hours a week. Right? So is all of this worth it? And so if I'm asking this, I'm sure that Jesus, I just think about Jesus. I wonder, right? Because I know Jesus loves us, right? Despite our failures and where we fall short. But I have to wonder if Jesus had a moment. And maybe it was that moment in the garden where he, he, he gets down and he prays. and He says, God, Father, if there's any other way, right? I have to wonder if in that moment there wasn't a part of Jesus that wondered, would it be worth it? Is it worth it? Right? You look at the history of Israel and the history of God's people. Over and over again, they turned away. Is it worth it? So let me spend a moment this morning reminding you of what Jesus went through. Because, because I think we've taken it a little bit too lightly in the church. Right? Sometimes it becomes a little bit too routine. Right? You even look at the way that we do communion. Right? And here's my communion loaf this morning. You look at the way we do communion, and so often it's this like beautiful, flowery, ornate, we have the right words to speak, and you have the right little procedure you have to take, right? Uh, and in a lot of churches I've served, uh, whoever it is that prepares the communion will actually like pre-cut it down the middle so it tears nicely right down the center, right? Communion is this beautiful <clears throat> expression of faith. But the thing we're celebrating in communion was not this nice, neat, flowery thing, right? 
let me let me read to you as it, from the book of John, chapter 19. This is Jesus preparing for those moments, right? So it says this. It says, Then Pilate took Jesus and had him flogged. Now, I don't know if you guys know what flogged means, but it essentially means you were beaten to within an inch of your life, right? You were whipped. In fact, this... This, the thing that the Romans would use to flog people were, had, had multiple tails on it, and interwoven in those tails were pieces of bone and metal. Right? And so it was said that the Romans would flog you as many times as possible, but still wanting you to be able to carry your cross for crucifixion. So in other words, they would beat you until just the moment right before you couldn't stand anymore, and then they would stop. It was not neat or pretty. It was messy. And then it says, The soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head. Now, I play a lot of disc golf. I'm also not very good at disc golf, which means that I go looking for my discs in the middle of the woods often. I've been pricked a few times with thorns. Right? And I'm sure some of you have been pricked with thorns before as well. They twist the thorns together and they shove it on his head. And it says they clothed him in a purple robe, and they went up to him again and again, saying, Hail, King of the Jews. And they struck him in the face. So in other words, they beat Jesus senseless. They whipped him. They mocked him. They hit him in the face. They put thorns on his head. This is messy. And then it says that the soldiers took charge of Jesus and carrying his own cross, he went out to the place of the skull. Here they crucified him and with him two others. Now, crucifixion was like the most shameful way to die in Rome. In fact, the Romans outlawed crucifixion for anyone who was a Roman citizen. Right? They're like, listen, if you're one of our citizens, we're going to punish you, but not that badly. Right? So the cross was the most shameful way to die. And they would either nail you or tie you by your wrist after you had been flogged, after you had been beaten. They would tie you up on this cross or drive nails through your wrists. In the 1960s, there were some German researchers who went to investigate just how this happened. So they had what I'm calling some crazy people volunteer to be tied to crosses. So they tied them up on crosses by their wrists, and after six minutes, right, six minutes, they, they had trouble breathing, their pulse had doubled, and their blood pressure had plummeted. In fact, they had to remove the volunteers after only 30 minutes. To give you some perspective, in most crucifixions, the victim lasted anywhere from three hours to four days. This was an excruciatingly painful and shameful way to die. So communion, our nice, neat communion bread that we rip perfectly in half, it doesn't really get the vibe of a Jesus who is beaten and bloodied and on the cross, right? If we were to do communion in the same way and in the same representative place that Jesus how Jesus was treated, communion is not a nice little rip. Communion is a constant tearing and tearing and tearing and tearing and tearing. This, this, 
This is what Jesus did. All of this, Jesus did. And I have to ask myself, would Jesus do this for this version of the church? Did he suffer all of this just so that we could do church like this? Would Jesus die for this? For the church that prioritizes a country's politics over a country's people. For the church that has no clue where it stands on moral issues. For a church that spends more money maintaining buildings than on disciple making. For a church that only adds transfers and not new followers. For a church that does church instead of being the church. For the church that is burning out their leaders in droves. Somebody give me an amen. <laughs> right? If this is all there is, right? If this is it, would Jesus die for this? He did. You see, at just the right time, Romans says, when we were all still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous man, though for a good man someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. This is the most insane part of the whole story, the most insane part of this whole series, right? Even though we get it wrong again and again and again, he did. He did die for this mess that we find ourselves in today. He died for this. Now, many of you, we think that the Jesus story is a personal one, and it is, right? Jesus took the punishment for each one of us, for all the ways that we continually mess up. Jesus took the punishment but he took it for his people collectively, for the church as well, right? The people, the Israelites, who turned away again and again and again. And he took it for the church that continues to follow other things and other idols and other people again and again and again, right? He knew. He knew. You know, I know that he knew. <laughs> because his people had done it over and over and over again before. What, would this, what difference would this make? And yet, he did. Would Jesus die for this? He did. And maybe I'm wrong, but I believe that how we respond to this act of love matters. Can we, the church, look at this story and take communion and think that the way we've done church is worthy of this act? Does our desire for the church to have home field advantage line up with the suffering servant who founded it? Should our historical sites and our treasured items continue to be treasured over the kingdom when compared to the sacrifice Jesus made? Jesus gave up everything, everything, to ensure that we could be in relationship with God. And nothing, even death, would get in his way. And yet look at how much gets in our way of Jesus. Look at how many idols need to be torn down in the church today. Paul wrote to the church in Ephesus. He said, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling that you have received. And many of us hear this verse and we apply it to our lives, right? I should live a life worthy of the call. And I agree with that. But the thing is, Paul wrote these words to a church. 
He wrote it to the church in Ephesus. And so we often refer to phrases like church life, right? So that could, should sort of make sense to you that a church could take life. But we have to ask ourselves, are we the church, the UMC, Goshen First and the Life Center? Are we living a life worthy of the calling we have received? Because our calling starts here. Our calling starts with the crucifixion. It's a call to participate in the death of Jesus Christ through communion. To be reminded constantly of the life that was lost that we might have life. Is the life that we are living, church, is it worth the price that was paid? Is our response appropriate to what was done for us? To our task as a church, right? If the answer here is no, which I'm guessing most of you have figured out is my feelings on it, right? If the answer here is no, our task this week and this month and this year and this life, our task is to close the gap. To be a church that so appreciates the work of Jesus Christ that the way we live and minister and make decisions and worship and pray always focuses on Jesus and never on us. It's about leaving it all out there when we come before God. And I believe, I know that we can be more. Because Jesus died for this. This should be more. This should be jumping out of our seats with appreciation and joy and celebration. This should put the needs of the community above the wants of ourselves. This should do every last thing in our power to live a life worthy of the calling that we've received. So are you ready, church? Are you ready to be more? Are you ready to sacrifice your own desires? Are you ready to reach the lost? Are you ready to change so that we can change the world? Because it all starts here. Remember what has been done for you. Not the flowery, beautiful thing that we make it into be, but the messy and disgusting and shameful thing that happened. Remember what has been done for you, for this, and be thankful this morning. Be so thankful that it leads you closer to Jesus and away from yourself. Remember and live the way of Jesus. We take the Lord's Supper, we remember, and we live. Let me pray. God, we are so, so grateful. We cannot even imagine a world in which we would not have the sacrifice of Jesus. We can't even imagine a world without the things that he's done for us. And yet, we so often take it for granted. We forget. We make it neat. We make it fit within our small box. And so, God, we apologize this morning. In fact, we come and we confess wholeheartedly the places where we have taken you too lightly. We know the sacrifice that was made for us so that we could have this, so that we could be your church, 
we know that we need to be more. So God, this week we pray that you would help us to put the old away. God, that you would help us to live a new life as your church. Living a life worthy of the calling we've received. Responding to your great act of love with the adoration and joy that is appropriate for it. So God, help us to go further. Help us, God, as we try to be your people, the church that lives a life worthy of the call. Help us, Lord, as we pour ourselves out in worship today. Bless this communion, this bread and this juice to be a reminder for us now in this moment of all that you do and all that you're going to do. So bless us, Lord, as we take it. Continue to challenge us forward in Jesus' name.